From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Spring football comes to a close this week with the orange and blue game going under the lights on Thursday. And while that is strictly an exhibition, the stakes couldn't be higher for gymnastics as they pursue a national title in Fort Worth. On today's show, we'll convene the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, to discuss expectations for the spring game, key players to watch, an influx of new basketball talent flooding in through the portal, Trinity Thomas and gymnastics trying to top the podium in Texas, baseball chugging along through the SEC, a new NIL partner for the athletic program, and most desired cruise destinations in the PAT. Then, sophomore Miguel Mitchell talks growing up in Alabama, transitioning to safety, and rising up the depth chart this spring. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Don't call it a comeback, but after a week off, the roundtable is here. We've got a full compliment today. We have FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, and of course the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, and a lot of things to cover. So guys, let's get right to it. First and foremost, let's talk about the Orange and Blue game. It is happening on Thursday night, so uh, if you're listening to this promptly when it comes out, that means tonight. Otherwise, you'll be hearing about it after the fact. Um, but let's talk about the spring game. What are what are we expecting? What would you hope to see? What do you think that the coaching staff hopes to see from this exhibition? Well, Adam, I guess I'll start. I think the first thing the coaches would say is that they hope to get through Thursday night injury-free and, and put a wrap on the spring football session. It's interesting. I think that most people that I've talked to who, who have been around the Florida football program for any significant amount of time will almost mention first off that they feel that they are in strange territory in the fact that we'll leave the spring Florida workouts uh, without maybe a clear-cut number one at quarterback. Whether you agree with who that should be or not, or whether there's controversy around that, that's aside. But certainly the quarterback competition has been wide open all spring and will remain wide open uh, following the spring workouts. We'll see a heavy dose of Grand Mertz. The transfer from Wisconsin tomorrow, Jack Miller as well. Both guys will float between both the orange and blue teams. I will say this, Max Brown has had a pretty significant spring and may has, uh, may have solidified himself as a, as a clear number three in that quarterback room. And who knows, by the time we get to September, maybe Max Brown has made even a further move, but he has shined during the spring. Other than that, I think the coaching staff clearly um, – have seen what they want to see and what they need to see during the spring. And there are some injuries. We won't see some significant guys in the spring game tomorrow night. But I think for the most part, those guys uh, already know their place or their place is known. And I'm thinking of like Kingsley Aguak in the starting center, for for an example. Uh, the tight end room is thin due to injuries, both injuries incurred 
prior to spring ball. And then Dante Xander's probably won't play tomorrow night as well. So we'll get a look at some guys that maybe we wouldn't get a normal look at at the tight end position. Offensive line remains a question. They've got some holes to fill there. But I think one thing that will be showcased is probably an improved wide receiver room for the Gators tomorrow. Uh, a longer athletic, more uh, uh, more physical defensive front for Florida. And a young but promising defensive secondary, too. And then, of course, the biggest known of all, the running back room for the Gators could end up being a, a three-headed monster headlined by Montreal Johnson and, of course, Trevor Etienne, the Bayou backfield. So those are the kind of things I'm kind of looking at with regard to the spring game tomorrow night. It'll be fun to mix, mix up these two teams, orange and blue. Orange seems to lean more toward what we would call first-teamers, but there is a mix on both sides. We talked to Miguel Mitchell for this week's show, and uh, you'll hear it in a second. I asked him, you know, what's going to be like going against the guys in the spring game, you know, half speed. And he said, no, we're going full speed. We're, <laughs> we're still going to hit guys. We're going to protect them, but we're going to be flying around out there. So at least from the secondary standpoint, they, they plan to have some fun. Yeah, full go. And, and the format, you know, obviously it's a controlled situation. But for the most part, this is going to look somewhat like a regular football game four quarters of football running clock for the majority of it they'll stop the clock um you know in the final two minutes of halves i think as you would normally see in a regular season game but this will be more football than say um you know we're going to spot the ball here at the 35 and do red zone work for a quarter or we're only going to do third down work like some teams do this will be more like a, a game to where Three and out may happen. Special teams will be involved, all those things. Well, I think Sean's overview was really good. I think he hit on the the high points. And, you know, everybody's going to be looking at those quarterbacks because we really haven't seen any of them in any kind of extended uh, way at Florida except Jack Miller's performance in the Las Vegas Bowl. And let's face it, that was one that most Florida fans want to forget, but also not fair to Jack Miller either considering the way he had to kind of step in there and not really over his thumb injury fully. So it's going to be a good glimpse at those guys. But to me, spring games are always about the quarterback, first of all, when you have a battle. But after that, I just want to see young, new players. And there's a lot of them at Florida this year with all the transfers after this year as Billy Napier kind of revamped the the, the uh, roster after year one. And, you know, some guys who just caught my eye, in the, the scrimmages I've seen, I, I like Cam Carroll, uh, his depth uh, in the backfield behind your your top two guys, Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne. Uh, he's a guy that came in from Tulane, a six-year guy. Obviously, nothing really surprised him at spring football. He looks like a guy who'll be able to play. But And I've looked at the defensive line a lot, guys, because I think the defensive line is an area with the Gators that really we haven't seen the kind of unit up there that – most Florida fans traditionally have seen in quite a while. And I don't know if this group is going to be that breakthrough group, but I do believe that they have some players up there who look like defensive linemen I remember at Florida. You know, I'm starting with the the freshman, uh, Kelby Collins out of Alabama. And, you know, you look at some of these young guys and you know that they're, they're going to, it's going to take a while for them to get their, feet uh, under them, so to speak. But I think he's ahead of the curve in that regard. And Ian makes a couple of guys who are back, but looking to play bigger roles this year, Chris McClellan and Tyreek Sapp. And I think Tyreek Sapp has really been active uh, in the scrimmages I've seen. He's made some plays. 
I like everything about Chris McClellan, a guy who really came on last year in the second half, and I think he's looking to be more of a leader this year. So, uh, you know, you have those kind of storylines at almost every position, guys, except more so on defense, I think. I think your offense, you know, they, it, we're all going to be watching the offensive line, right? That's where most of the new newcomers are but besides the quarterbacks. So it's just a chance to really get a better gauge uh, on some of the uh, – I guess, position battles and development of the young guys. And that's what spring games are about to me. Scott, would you say that there is any player that, you know, I'm thinking of like Xavier Henderson had three touchdowns in the last scrimmage. Mm -hmm. we, we mentioned some of the new guys, but when it comes to guys that may be making a jump from one year to the next, can you think of anybody else? I, I guess Caleb Douglas came to mind for me a little bit, but was there anybody else on your list that perhaps will show us something that we didn't see from them last fall? Well, I think it's really the two guys. I mean, McClellan's one of them that's certainly there in my eyes. And I think Sapp's another one. But in the secondary, I think they have to have that from Kamari Wilson and, uh, and Miguel Mitchell. I mean, to me, that safety position is, you know, you need those guys to jump up because they have a, a great opportunity right now. And that's, that's what they're expecting the coaches need to see out of them. Obviously, uh, guys that weren't there last fall who people may – take notice of how about Andy Jean or Aiden Mizell um those are guys that kind of jumped out a little bit um in some scrimmages thus far true freshman receivers early enrollees who have distinguished themselves a little bit and and obviously when you're when you're talking about uh what's going to happen with the with the quarterback situation who they're throwing to is going to have a lot to do with that and uh, I, I think the Gators have, have have upgraded themselves in that room per se but I think Last spring game I can remember that had any of any real significance. Uh, I was actually at the one in 1990, Spurrier's first. They played it in Jacksonville because they were redoing the stadium here. And there were five quarterbacks vying for the job. And everyone thought spring games didn't really mean that much. Then Shane Matthews went out there and was near perfect and threw for three touchdown passes and on his way to being SEC player of the year as a, as a, as a, unheard of sophomore that year um we're not we're not in that realm obviously the, the game has changed so much over the last uh three decades and what have you but i tell you what i was struck i, I went to see excuse me uh, uh tuesday night i went to see billy napier speak to the quarterback club in gainesville and just him talking about being two years into it the roster turnover obviously is significant just but but the idea of people in the building and players in the building going through things a second time and knowing, knowing how things are being done. Now the fans in the stands, uh, assuming that they, they, they don't get wet on Thursday night because weather, weather could be a factor for this game. Um, I think more than anything, the, 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 the overriding factor of something like, when you talk about the 106 players on the roster right now, Bill, Billy Napier signed 60 of them. The, he's getting the, the locker room with his guys I love to point out that uh, uh, last year, I, I think some of the best players on the team, when you're talking about Torrance and Montreal Johnson and Ricky Pearsall and ETN, Shamar James, Kamari Wilson, some guys that distinct were guys Billy Napier brought into the into the fold last year, and he didn't have a whole lot of time to do it. He's had a recruiting cycle, a full one, a top 10 class. So the thing are, things are matriculating the way he would like them to, uh, getting his guys in there. and. That may not be something that the fans can see, but it's certainly something that uh, that they're that is being felt 
in the uh, new $85, 90000000 million heaven or football training com- uh, center. And in terms of bringing in your own guys, I'd like to use that to pivot over to basketball, Chris, because I think the last time we talked about hoops, it was all about attrition and the fact that Todd Golden was going to have to essentially remake the entire roster, although in fairness, it seems like most college basketball coaches have to do that every year now. Um, but in that time, he has really done that. And we're talking about a bunch of new guys coming in that are changing the look and and thankfully the height of this roster as well. Yeah, Florida has uh, landed a, a, a trio of, uh, of transfers and not just transfers, but ones that were uh, very much sought after certainly high on their boards and I'll, I'll, I'm not going to go in chronological order right here, but Walter Clayton jr. Was, was the player they wanted most out of everybody in the transfer portal. He's a kid from Lake Wales. He's a player, a homegrown player. Wasn't there that highly recruited uh, as a basketball player was more highly recruited as a football player over there, but he went to Iona um, and he just, he just blossomed into a, a really good player just across the board. He's a guard uh, he's athletic. He can really, really shoot at over 40%. Uh, he was in a top 75 in, in, in uh, percentage wise in, in, in steals. Um, and he's, he's just a tough, ferocious competitor. And on a team that was really lacking what I would consider, I, I, I call them, you know, just, just fierceness when it comes to competing. And I think, I think Florida really lacked that lacked fire uh, uh, last year in, in, in a lot of places. So there's a lot that the uh, Todd Golden and his staff want to switch uh, uh, in terms of the culture, both, you know, in the locker room and on the floor. Uh, Walter Clayton Jr. is going to help that instantly. You mentioned height. Um, Micah Hanlogton, I think I'm, I'm going to try to say his name correctly, Hanlogton, by way of Marshall. He's 7'1", he's 225, 230 pounds, uh, elite shot blocker, uh, uh, just a, a, a really pretty darn good athlete for that size. And the, one of the best things about him, and I, and I neglected to say this about well, Walter has two years of eligibility remaining, so he's not this mercenary coming in to play one year. Micah, Mike, Micah uh, Hanlockton has three years of eligibility remaining. So uh, th- those are huge pluses right now. Um, Hanlockton is a is a guy who's who's going to give them defensive presence. He averaged almost uh, ten rebounds a game, and obviously, uh, I'm sure Sean, how how frustrating was it what, to watch this team try to rebound uh, some last year? Um, uh, I say some last year, most of the times last year. He's going to help them instantly on that front. Uh, he can really run the floor. He's a it's a rim runner in the half court. He's not a three-point shooter. They don't need him to do that. He's got some some skill deficiencies that, that, that they'll work on in terms of offense, uh, but they're not worried about that. He's going to come in here and, and start working on that right away. And finally, uh, EJ, excuse me, EJ Jarvis, who goes by the nickname Edge, he comes by, by way of Yale. I'm not sure we talked about him last time. He joined the fold last week, and he's a 6'8 guy. He was on a team at Yale that that won the regular season up there and ultimately lost to Princeton, which made it to the Sweet 16. Um, so he failed to make the NSA tournament. He'll have one year of eligibility remaining. Those are three impact players that are going to be in the rotation right away. Um, I, I think it. I think Florida upgrades themselves in all three of those spots. If you start thinking about the the four transfers that that exited along with the three uh, fifth year seniors that exited. 
They still got work to do, uh, Brandon. I I wouldn't be surprised when we when we talk uh, in the podcast next week if there's not t- another two more transfers that have been added to the fold. Now I neglected to add also um, Alex Congdon is a guy that we weren't able to talk about. He committed last year uh, early on in the season. Uh, couldn't sign in the fall because it was too late. I actually got to see the guy. He came on an unofficial visit for a game. He's six eleven, about two twenty. He's got room to grow, but he comes from Australia and he comes from the um, he comes from the, the the academy down there that has put out some some really, really good players, including Josh Giddy. If anybody's seen him play from uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, they can tune, tune in the playing tournament in the NBA this year. But uh, 6'11 guy, when I talk about toughness, it's something they they really want to emphasize and I'll just leave this. The his uh, uh, Alec Condon's father is in the Australian Rules Football Hall of Fame. Okay, um, this guy was an Australian Rules Football so uh, uh, player growing up, um, and so uh, I don't think physicality is going to be a problem for him. So they're in the midst of flipping things, changing attitudes. Like I said, changing culture in the basketball uh, building and. Uh, you're going to need a program, and that's kind of the, the, the way it is in college basketball right now. You're, you're not going to recognize a lot of these faces, uh, but coming off a 16-17 and 17, uh, record, um, that may not be a bad thing, actually. Yeah, and if, if, if I can add a, a, a possible intangible that I would be eager to see, Chris, and that is this. We watched Todd Golden, and this is a sign of a, of a good coach, and that is one who coaches to the strengths and weaknesses of their roster. And that's always a good thing. You know, offensively, we're going to play through Colin Castleton. We'll make a defensive change because we're getting hurt in transition, which would hurt the rebounding numbers. But that had to be done. The The eagerness I have in learning about these new players is that now Golden in his second year may, may now have a roster more suitable to the way he wants to coach or the system that he wants to run, as opposed to leaning more toward the opposite end of that coaching spectrum. So. When you talk about toughness, you talk about getting some shooters on the perimeter, maybe some more significant rim protection slash rebounding, more than just one individual in, in, in this last year's case, that perhaps these the addition of these players, much like we talked about with Napier, more Todd Golden-like players, he'll be able to get to more what Todd Golden likes to do with his program and the way that he runs offense and defense as opposed to kind of having to make a lot of concessions based on the roster that he mostly inherited in year one. Yeah. And we didn't even mention, and I, excuse me, I didn't mention in, in talking about these incoming players, he's trying to fit them around current guys he has. And of course that starts, the rebuild starts around Riley Kugel, who uh, people wondered if he was going to stick around or maybe uh, dip his toe into the, see what was going on with the NBA um, he's not even going to mess with the pre-draft process. He's here. He's working out. Um, the team is going to be built around he, he and Will Richard, uh, who had a pretty solid sophomore year, certainly some really good uh, offensive metrics of uh, shooting the basketball and everything. I mentioned Walter Clayton, 40% shooter, 49% shooter from two. He was second in the country in free throw shooting at 95%. <laughs> I hope some of that can rub off on the right. Maybe it can rub off on Mike La- Micah Hanlogged him, but he was about a 55% free throw shooter. So maybe, maybe he can teach him, but uh, uh, that's the mix that we're talking about. And I, I'm pretty confident. Like I said, this time next week, they, they're going to fill out some other things. They need another guard. They need another big. 
Um, maybe even another couple bigs. We'll see how this all plays out over the course of maybe not just next week, but the weeks to come, if not the months to come, because uh, there's some more activity in the offing. I saw Todd Golden. I said, you had a good day today. I saw him uh, yesterday, and he came by and gave me fist bump. He goes, we ain't done yet, brother, and they're not. So a lot of excitement about the future uh, for basketball and for football, which we covered. Uh, now let's talk about the the present, the very present, and that is gymnastics in Fort Worth trying to win a national championship. And Scott, I, I think everybody, um, you know, gasped and kind of sat on pins and needles during the regional when it when Trinity Thomas got hurt. So the question that's been building up to this run in a championship is number one: Is Trinity Thomas going to be a hundred percent? And if she is, can Florida win this title and finally deliver what she told us last week on the show she came back for, which is to win that first national title for her and the first for the program since 2015? Yeah, I mean, I could tell you, you know, she they had their first practice session out here, their only practice session before uh, the semifinal on uh, Thursday. But they had it on Wednesday here in uh, Fort Worth. And uh, Trinity did practice on the bars, but did not go through warm-ups in the other event she was out there with her teammates uh but yeah she did not compete so what what that tells me Adam, you know she's obviously not 100 percent uh, i think you're gonna see her compete but i'm not for sure you're gonna see her compete on all four events and you know bridget sloan was here uh out here so i was talking to her today and just asking her you know about what she thinks about the chances and you know she says look this is a lot different Florida team than she was on when they did win the three straight national titles. I mean, if she had gotten hurt or Keetra Hunter gotten hurt, it would have been over. There would have been no chance. She says the sport has improved so much and Florida's roster has so much depth, more depth now that sure it hurts when Trinity's not out there because she's going to give you a probably nine, nine, two, five on about every event, but they have enough depth with, you know, Kayla DeCello and Leanne Wong and some of the other young uh, performers to make up those points if they're on top of their their game, so it's going to be it's going to be a big challenge for the Gators, uh, you know. But I don't think it's impossible. But they're going to have to be at the top of their game. They're probably going to have to get some help. But it's going to be a competitive field. I mean, the best of the best are out here, and uh, Trinity Thomas is obviously the looming storyline uh, over the Gators' uh, trip out here, and really the the whole uh, finals because she's such a kind of a mainstay in college gymnastics now for five years. And, and you hate to see anybody get hurt in any sport when it's at the end for them. So I'm hoping we see her out there in some capacity and see what the Gators do. I and, mean, you know, they're hoping for the best, obviously. For fans that don't know a lot about how the, the championship works for gymnastics, correct me if I'm wrong here, Scott. So on Thursday afternoon, Florida will compete against three other teams, the top two from that advance to the final on Saturday, and then there'll be another fourth compete later Thursday. So you have four teams that make it to the final on Saturday, and then the best score Saturday is your national champion, correct? That is correct. And, uh, you know, Florida's in the session with Cal, LSU, and Denver. Uh, so, you know, they 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 had Cal in their regional. Uh, they obviously have LSU in the SEC. So there's familiarity there. And uh, like I said earlier, the best of the best is, uh, is in Fort Worth and uh, they're trying to uh, build a, a culture out here like Omaha has with uh, the College World Series. And, I mean, it's a big event out here. You can tell walking around the street, you know, there's a lot of gymnastics fans in town. So all eyes will be on Fort Worth to see if Florida and especially if Trinity Thomas can make it happen 
uh, as they've been building toward for months and, and really years, in fact. I want to talk a little bit of baseball now. And guys, we've been talking about the storyline hasn't really changed. This team is still not going to cover off the ball. Uh, and they keep winning in places where maybe you don't win all the time. Going to Tennessee and taking two or three is huge. Tennessee was the number one team in the country last year. They beat Florida State again. Seemingly every time they play FSU, they find a way to win. Um, so as far as baseball goes, all signs continue to point to this team being primed for a, a deep run into the postseason. Well, if I may start with pitch clock, because we've talked about that before. Um, the win this week against Florida State was two hours and nine minutes. Wow. Full nine inning or eight and a half inning baseball game uh, as it pertains. So we are seeing some benefits of the uh, the pitch clock, not only in Major League Baseball, cut down by 31 minutes a game so far, college baseball as well. It was a crisply played game this week against Florida State. And one of the guys that's been struggling quite a bit, Ty Evans, was the hero he hit the home run to get the Gators on top and, and win their second time over Florida State. Uh, it, 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 I want to say it's same old, same old for baseball, but still ranked number three in the country, according to D1 Baseball. Uh, as you mentioned, a very big series win at Tennessee, a Tennessee team that's not offensively what they were a year ago, but pitching-wise is probably as strong. And so um, other than what was a miserable end of the series in Knoxville weather-wise and on the scoreboard, uh, it was a very successful weekend for Florida. And that offense, Adam, as you mentioned, uh, continues to roll right along, uh, led by Jack Caglione and Josh Rivera. And uh, now a change in the lineup has Wyatt Langford at the top and in the leadoff position. So Kevin O'Sullivan has made an adjustment in the starting lineup, bumping some guys up, and it's paid off with some big wins recently. The the, the new storyline will be this as, as the Gators host Georgia this weekend is that who will be now the Sunday starting pitcher or the game three starting pitcher on the weekend? A couple of bad outings now for Jack Caglione on the mound has uh, prompted a big question in, as to who will be on the mound in game three of these upcoming series. Um, I don't know if Kevin O'Sullivan has made a decision on that. I think he's leaning toward going away from Caglione and maybe moving Caglione to the mound for midweek to get him back on track. But that'll be the big question mark heading into the weekend against Georgia. It's an important series in this sense. Georgia does not present, you know, a marquee matchup. The Bulldogs are really struggling on the mound this year. But it's a home series that the Gators really have to take advantage of against an opponent that they should handle, maybe even sweep this weekend. One must get that done looking at the schedule ahead. And we'll find out what's next for Florida in their maturation process or their their move toward being postseason ready. We'll know a lot more here in the coming weeks than seemingly what we've already learned now through the first nine, ten weeks of the regular season. And speaking of home series against Georgia, softball also has won this weekend. So there'll be dogs on both diamonds in Gainesville. Uh, softball coming off two or three they won at home against Auburn. So some momentum for them, the SEC, that they will also hope to carry in through the weekend. And I want to talk about something that gets uh, frequently tossed around these days, but not with a lot of specificity, and that is NIL. Uh, we talk about it all the time, but it's this weird nebulous thing, but it certainly got a lot of attention last fall for reasons we all know. Florida has now made a change in the NIL space. Guys, tell us about the latest iteration of Florida's NIL partner. Well, you're going to be hearing a lot about it, Adam. Florida victorious, you know, got unveiled on Thursday and uh, this is a, I guess, what I would call NIL 2.0 for the Gators. And, you know, you in your lead-in, you mentioned uh, 
you know, Florida had some issues with its initial NIL. Not necessarily. I mean, you got to remember these are third entity parties. So you and I could have started the NIL after uh, July first, two thousand twenty-one, if we wanted to. Did we? And I just don't know about it. Or no, we didn't. <laughs> we, we did not, okay. but we could have. And obviously, <laughs> you've seen a lot of these pop up around the country. Some have, I think, been better than others, and. You know, I, I think uh, Florida fans are most familiar with the, uh, the Gator Collective, and now that has been bought out by Florida Victorious. But this is not just a a buyout or a trade. I think what this is, it's it's really established like a fundraising arm that you often see with these athletic departments, you know, like Gator Boosters. But it's separate. It's an NIL entity, and I think they've hired some really good people uh, to run it and you know, if you've been on social media or the internet the last 24 hours, you're going to see a lot of it out there. A lot of uh, a lot of big name ex Gators have endorsed it. Uh, a lot of the current Gators, I think they announced uh, already. They've signed 64 football players to NIL deals. So um, this is a new world we live in. But I, I think it was for the Gators. I think this is a big development, a good development, um, because I, I think you know every school. You know, they didn't. We, no one really knew what NIL was going to become. And at a school like Florida, like Billy Napier said over and over, the NIL, you know, University of Florida uh, should be a great NIL because of the resources and the fan base and the alumni uh, and the tradition and history. And I, I think they put the people in place uh, to make that happen here. Now uh, we'll see how the space changes over the, the years because it's still an undefined space in a lot of ways. But I think the Gators are much more well-positioned right now than they were yesterday. Moving on to our PAT, it's inspired by uh, why I wasn't here a week ago, why we had no roundtable. I was actually on a cruise, um, which has also doubled in the last couple of years as a great way to uh, to get sick, if you can tell from my voice today. But still had a great time. Love going on cruises. And one of the cool things about cruises is they can take you almost anywhere in the world. Now they have cruises that go through Europe. There's ones that go to Australia. You can do pretty much anywhere you want that has water. You can take a cruise. So uh, I have a two-part question. I had to alter this after talking to Sean about it. The first question is, do you even want to be on a cruise? And if, if we get past that A portion, the B portion is, where would you like to go if a cruise could take you anywhere in the world? Well, I was going to address that. You know, I'm I'm I've done the day cruise before, but I'll be honest with you, cruises kind of just bring images to me of being an amusement park on water, and I cannot stand amusement parks. <laughs> so my wife has suggested that we do take a cruise maybe this summer, the summer after, and I've been putting her off for as long as I can. But I'm I have a feeling I'm going to end up on a cruise, and I'm, I'm going to try to keep it to three days or less. Okay, and I. It, you know, as far as where, I mean, anywhere in the world, Adam, where could I, I mean, I don't know. I'd go somewhere exotic, obviously, Bora Bora, but I'd want to start at a really nearby island, like fly over there and then just take a day cruise to Bora Bora because the thought of actually selling out of Miami going to Bora Bora is a very just, I'd just rather just jump in the water and get off the boat. And I just not, it's just not my thing. You know, I'm a, I love the beach. I love water. I just don't think I just don't have any interest in a cruise. I'm sorry to be the damper here, but I know Sean and Chris are just going to bring this podcast to another level right here. 
Scott doesn't believe in the cruise as a mode of transportation, basically. Scott wants to fly somewhere to get on the cruise instead of using it as an actual yeah, a travel vessel. I take vessel. a day cruise to Bora Bora. I don't want to go on a boat for like two weeks. <laughs> Scott, Scott just doesn't want to get in a thong again. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. And parade, and parade, parade around on the deck. Yeah, yes. yeah. Nor does anyone else want to see it. <laughs> the only cruise I've ever been on, I was on a small uh, th- uh, cruise for two days i think it was maybe two and a half um down the amazon river oh wow and we would we docked and we actually uh uh, stayed in the in the in the amazon rainforest um it was a it was an organized kind of thing i mean it's a a a tourist touristy kind of thing but um i was freelancing a, a travel story at the time and this was something that was offered up but uh really really beautiful and really, really, and I, I think that's pretty close to being exotic. Yeah. Uh, the Am- the Amazon River, when I saw crocodiles and what have you, and uh, it was kind of kind of cool. You're not going to do a whole lot of swimming on a on a on a cruise like that. But um, Sean, you're up. Two qualifiers. Um, number one is Captain Steubing involved. I mean, if Gavin <laughs> McLeod is not on the cruise, or Charo is it really a cruise? Um, <laughs> j- just to throw that out there. Uh, you know, I'm not against taking a cruise. If I were to take one, I think the Mediterranean would interest me greatly. Yeah. Um, I do like the idea of, uh, having a great day, um, on land and then back on the boat. And then when I wake up, the boat is somewhere else and I start a new adventure in another city. So Greece, Italy, Mediterranean cruise would be somewhat of interest to me. Um, but I certainly would be open to using a luxury boat to go from, one place to another that I would enjoy seeing. So in that sense, that would be what I would find cruise worthy in this case for me. Um, It would not be my first choice of vacation, but um, I could be persuaded. So it doesn't seem like any of you are going to be jumping to get on a cruise, but thank you for at least engaging with my uh, my premise. It's appreciated. But you guys don't have time to go on cruises because there's way too much happening in Gator Nation, as we've discussed in detail here today. Uh, so make sure to follow these guys. Check out their content on FloridaGators.com. Uh, and we will certainly have a lot to discuss next week as well. So we look forward to talking to you then. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Though the next man up mentality is often mentioned in regard to players stepping up due to injury, You could also safely use it in the case of Florida's safeties, as the combination of graduation, the transfer portal, and the NFL draft left the Gators extremely thin. Enter Miguel Mitchell, who played mostly on special teams as a freshman, but helped out in spots in the defensive backfield. Projected to start alongside Kamari Wilson in the fall, we took some time to get to know Mitchell ahead of the spring game. Uh, Yeah, I grew up. But my mom and my brother, my three brothers in Oxford, Alabama. Yeah, and that's how kind of how I grew up over there. It's like a small town between um, Atlanta and Birmingham, right there, right off I twenty, about really about fifteen minutes from the Georgia line, Alabama Georgia line. Do you feel like you grew up in Alabama, or do you more feel like you grew up in Georgia? Which which state do you claim? Um, I was born. See, I was born in Georgia, but okay, I grew up in Alabama, so I claim Alabama. I always claim Georgia. But okay, I'm still right there in between both. <laughs> if you grew up in Alabama and you claim Alabama, everybody in that state has to pick a side, right? So growing up, were you an Auburn guy or were you an Alabama guy? I was an Alabama fan. Okay. <laughs> how did how did that how did you become an Alabama fan? What what was what was your path to get there? 
Uh, really when AJ McCann and um, Amari Cooper in them days, that was really when I became a Bama fan. Ever since then, I guess it's easy when they're when they're good. It's it's easier to like them, right? That's when you're coming up. That's very true. Um, so, okay, so I want to, I want to talk about how you got started playing football. What was it where, did you have older siblings that played first for you, the first one in your family to, to get going? What, what's your, your, your football story? So when I was little, I didn't, I never played football. I only played, uh, basketball, baseball. My mom would never let me play football. Hmm. So like the coaches, but the coaches, like the football coaches, they always try to get me come out there like, yeah, let Miguel come play football, yada, yada, yada. And she would never let me come out there and play. And I really wasn't too much interested in even going to play. But I was always athletic. So eighth grade year, I was just like, shoot, I'm going to go try to play football. So I ended up going going out and playing middle school football. And I liked it. And I just stuck with it. So that's how I ended up starting playing football, eighth grade. So, okay, but you still had to get cleared, right? Did you have to to trick your mom into letting you play? How did you get her to agree to do it? I guess you just kind of let off and just say, yeah, go ahead. It's, if you want to, go ahead. Try it out. <laughs> so once you started playing, were you immediately like, oh, this is for me? Did you take to it in that way? Or, or were you still or were you still really into the other sports you were playing? I was still into the other sports. It was just kind of like, kind of like a hobby, really. I didn't really like get focused on it to, on football until about my junior year. My train, one of my trainers, he played college ball, and he uh, he just kept telling me he was like, "You could be really good, but if you just take it serious, just take it serious." So I kind of started taking it more ser- more and more serious, and then college school started talking to me, and then I was like, "Oh yeah," I, I just started like kind of like believing. I'm like, "Yeah, I, if I can take this more serious. I should take this more serious." Mm-hmm. What about position wise? Did you did you immediately? go to the defensive side? Did you sort of end up there by accident? How did you become a, a DB? So eighth grade, I always played all over the field. I was really more offensive guy. Eighth grade, I played, I came out and played receiver. But I was so athletic, they was like, we're going to put you at DB too. And then my freshman year of high school, I was athletic, like I said. So they've been, I played quarterback my freshman year. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then my sophomore year, I played straight receiver. And that's when I kind of started talking to schools. And then I ended up flipping to safety. I didn't first, I first played safety my junior year in high school. Did you like playing on defense or was it more of just, okay, this is what people think I'm going to be best at and it's going to give me the opportunities? Or were you all in? Were you like, okay, let's, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a DB now. Let's, let's break some stuff up. Oh, no, I was mad. They moved me to DB. Because. <laughs> I was playing on series and I was talking to school, so I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna stay over here." And uh, my coach made me like he made me play safety. He was like, "Yeah, you gonna play safety? I don't care." Um, because he knew he was like, "I got told you." He was telling me like, "Yeah, you could be really good. You can get way more, way more better offers." So I ended up he ended up making me play safety, and I guess it kind of worked out. So when the offers started coming. Was it really quick? Was all of a sudden was everybody sending you letters, or was it kind of a slow process? What do you remember about when that whole cycle first started? I remember when um, they first like it's like after that sophomore year, it's like a date somewhere like it's your like recruitment officially starts, and I remember it was like maybe like ten schools that like just shot out like, hey, we like you like. We're going to keep watching you type stuff. Like, it was more like interest stuff, but I didn't really like 
blow up and start getting like offers to like after my junior year. I looked at the the list of schools you were considering, and at least the the finalists it did not include an Alabama school. Did you not want to stay in state? Were they not on your radar? Like what? Because usually guys are from Alabama. You know they've got Alabama or Auburn's at least in the mix. But how did that work for you? Yeah. So what happened? I ended up. I was really supposed to go to. I was supposed to go to both of their camps because like they wanted to see me in person. Mm-hmm. But. I had, um, I remember I pulled my hamstring in the summer going into that camp and I never went and I never ended up, they just, I never ended up talking to them really hmm. after that. And, um, I went to Auburn and that was for Alabama, but for Auburn, I went to that camp. I ended up doing really good and they didn't never offer me. They, I kept going and then like, they kept saying like, come visit, come visit. And I went, I went on a lot of visits during the season. So I went to, um, I went to like the Ole Miss game that year, the Iron Bowl game. Then they end up switching staffs and then just, I don't know, it just kind of fell off. Well, speaking of switching staffs, you came into Florida during the transition to Coach Napier's staff. So how did your recruitment go with the Gators? Were you were you already interested in Florida before Coach Napier came or did that happen really quickly after he showed up? So um, so I had a, we had an alumni connection down here. One of my like mentors, he played at Ole Miss. Uh, his name's Trey by name Trey Elston. Hmm. He was like All American at Ole Miss over there, played safety. He had like connections down here at Florida, and we was kind of talking. And they said they was interested in me. And then all of a sudden, boom! The uh, the staff got fired, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that Nate, Coach Napier and them got the job as well. And then the interest went up even more because they was already talking to me at UL. What was it like then taking what you had heard from from him when he was at Louisiana and then what you were expecting from Florida? How did that all come together? What did they tell you about the vision for you, the vision for the program that ultimately got you to come to Gainesville? Yeah, uh, I I liked the program when it was at UL. I just, only thing that was about me was like, I wanted to go, one of my goals, I wanted to go Power 5. Mm-hmm. So really, when they when he came to the SEC, that kind of like checked all the boxes, really. Mm-hmm. So it just ended up being the perfect fit, perfect timing, perfect match. What did he and his staff do that that spoke to you, other than being Power Five? Like, there's I know there's so much more that goes into it. What else? What else was important to you that that checked boxes? Uh, just the culture. They had a real family oriented culture, and um. I just wanted to win a lot. I mean, I seen I seen they was in the top twenty five a lot um, when he was there. They was in the top twenty five about every year, and he just he really boosted that program. I didn't even know who Louisiana was before they got there. So I really wanted to be winning. I like I like winning. So when you got on campus, what do you remember about the adjustment period of starting school, joining the team, meeting all these new people? What was the most challenging part? Really, it's just adapting from that um, high school to college, just being on your own. Now you got to make choices for yourself. Uh, you got to make the right eating choices, the right habits after, like, off the field, uh, the pre-practice stuff that you do. You got to make the right decisions there. And that's kind of what's the biggest difference. I know a lot of times that guidance will come from some of the older guys, the veterans that are around in the locker room. Which players, I don't know if it could be one guy, it could be multiple guys, which ones really took you under their wing and showed you the ropes? Uh, I would say probably Trey Dean was the biggest person that just kind of took me on his wing and just showed me like um, the right things to do and how to be a pro, stuff like that. 
how did he do that? Like, what other things did he do? Was it, was it like day one, like, Hey man, I got you. Or did it sort of just evolve into that as you guys got to know each other? He coached me hard off the field, even additional coaching from like my regular coaching for my regular coach. He just add on like, yeah, you need to be doing this. Probably you need to be doing that. And then he'd always keep me in after we'd always do a little extra work. We do something to get better at or something that we messed up on during the day. Just uh, perfecting the craft, getting better, and making us the best we could be. So last year, opening game, you're in the swamp. You're playing under the lights. There's 90,000 people. You're playing Utah. It's a huge game. I'm curious what that was like. I mean, coming from high school in Alabama, what did it feel like playing in the swamp for the first time? Was it what you expected? Was it more than you expected? What do you remember about that first game out? That probably might be that probably might be hard to beat because. The first game ever in was against U, the Utah game, and the way it ended, the way the whole game went, that was a good game. They was ranked top ten. They were top ten, yeah. Yeah, that's probably hard to beat. It was amazing to be a crazy to be a first game, first game freshman in the swamp. So, other than that, what were some of your other favorite moments from last season, which was only your first season? So you got a lot more to go, but what was it? What other yeah. parts of uh, of your freshman year stood out when you think about it now? I like the the South Carolina game was probably one of my favorites. Defense had a fun game that game. <laughs> that was probably the most funnest one to me that I remember. Looking at where you are now, in what ways do you think you grew the most from last year to this year? How have you improved both on and off the field? Um, off the field, I'd say my body's in a better shape than it was. Just um, working with nutrition, you know, just putting the right stuff in my body so I can go out there and perform the best. And then on the field, I'd say probably I learned the most is like schematically. Like I've learned a lot about the def- defenses and I learned about a lot of what like offensive tendencies and stuff like that. I'm sure it, it didn't make it easy as part of that, that you had a coaching change on the defensive side of the ball too, with your coordinator leaving. Um, but tell us about the, your, your background with Austin Armstrong, is that thought that was interesting that you even had a connection with your new defensive coordinator? Yeah, he was. Um, he was actually my first offer. Wow, it's a coincidence. So he gave me my first offer. Yeah, and he was just great throughout recruiting. How much of a change is there in the defense going from what you did last year under Coach Tony to what you're doing under him this year? I wouldn't say there was too much change because he was under. Um, he was with them at UL, and they kind of do a lot of similar things. They just add, he adds his own little twist to things a little bit here and there. Uh, just a few more questions for you. I'm curious when you look at guys at the next level, who do you model your game after? What what pros do you look up to? Do you try and and emulate when you're out there on the field? Derwin James is probably my biggest um, comparison that I like to compare myself to because he's kind of like a bigger safety. And I'll consider myself pretty big. In terms of playing that position, I know that you, you've had a lot of change since last year, but largely because there there's so much change at that position, uh, all of a sudden you've had a chance to fly up the, the depth chart. So can you talk about that transition process for you throughout this spring and where it has you set up now for the fall? Yeah, it's just been a blessing. You know, I still try to, um, I try to compete myself, really. I just try to be the best I can be in it. If I'm the best I can be, shoot, all that to take, all the depth chart to take care of itself. In what ways has spring practice been different than the fall? Because you came in last year in the fall. This is your first spring practice. How How is it different? How is it similar? 
it's a lot more um i'll say it's kind of relaxed more it's more about like, physicality and stuff like that because like it's further away from the season if that makes sense mm-hmm. where all camps like more it's more serious because like you're coming into the season you don't have as much time to like adjust things so Right now, everybody's still trying to figure each other out in the spring, kind of so. But it's been very energetic out there. Everybody's having fun, trying to fly around. So it all leads up to the orange and blue game. I'm curious, on the defensive side, how do you get amped up for a spring game? Because like you're not allowed to hit people that hard, right? So what what is the what does success look like on the defensive side in in a scrimmage like you're gonna have in the orange and blue game? Oh shoot, we're gonna go at it with the offense. We treat them like any other team. I mean, we're gonna take care of each other, of course, but we treat them as any other team. We're going out of them practice right now. <laughs> okay. Never mind. I take it back that I take it back. Um, <laughs> final question for you. When you're away from football, so let's say when spring camp is done, when the game is passed, what do you like to do? What what is what is free time look like when you can do whatever it is that you want to do without football, school, any of that stuff? Shoot, I'm either somewhere on the water, swimming, jet ski, something like that. Um, I'm either on the game, playing. I got the new MLB right now. Hmm. I'm on that right now, the MLB. It's just I can't play baseball no more. <laughs> uh, I like to go to, like, parks a lot. So, like, Six Flags, that kind of thing. Oh, you're a theme park guy. Yeah, I, I like those six flags because I like, right there. Yeah, six flags is not too far from me where I stay back home. See those the other one, Great White. That, those are all right there. This I've interviewed like three hundred people for the show. No one's ever brought up Six Flags before. <laughs> um, I'm I'm a season pass holder. What are What are your favorite rides at Six Flags? Uh, I say the Superman, the Batman, Acrophobia. That's probably my three three favorites. You're not a You're not a Goliath guy. Too big. Too scary. Nah, I, I ride a lot. It's just not one of my favorites. No, okay. Right, so what's going to have to happen? You're going to have to go with me because my wife won't do acrophobia. She's too scared. So I always end up doing it by myself. And it's not nearly as fun doing it by myself. No, I wrote, I wrote all of them pretty much. <laughs> Anything? Have you gone to any of the Florida parks? Have you gone down? Have you done Universal? you done Busch Gardens, Disney, any of those since you've been down in Florida? Uh, we went to SeaWorld back in the, like the fall sometime. I can't remember. We went to SeaWorld, though. What did you think of SeaWorld? They had some great coasters. What, what was your favorite stuff at SeaWorld? The Stingray one. I forgot what it's called. I think it's Manta. called Manta. 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 It's like Superman, but it's way better than Superman. Yeah, that one was fun. And then there was another one. I can't remember. It's, um, dang, I don't remember the names of them. I just remember like animals a little bit. Mako, the shark one. And there's Kraken. No, it wasn't that one. Was it Icebreaker? Yeah, that was one of them. Okay. Well, Miguel, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it, and we we wish you a lot of luck going into the fall. Thank you. No problem. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting floridagators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.